be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 3, Winter Storms and Spring Floods. We'll be hearing about the wild winter mornings to be experienced in the Yosemite Valley as we are regaled with a vivid portrayal of the beauty and power of nature during the stormy weather of the season. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Winter Storms and Spring Floods The Bridal Veil and the Upper Yosemite Falls, on account of their height and exposure, are greatly influenced by winds. The common summer winds that come up the River Canyon from the plains are seldom very strong, but the north winds do some very wild work worrying the falls and the forests, and hanging snow banners on the comet peaks. One wild winter morning, I was awakened by a storm wind that was playing with the falls as if they were mere wisps of mist, and making the great pines bow and sing with glorious enthusiasm. The valley had been visited a short time before, by a series of fine snowstorms, and the floor and the cliffs and all the region round about were lavishly adorned with its best winter jewelry. The air was full of fine snow dust and pine branches. Tassels and empty cones were flying in an almost continuous flock. Soon after sunrise, when I was seeking a place safe from flying branches, I saw the lower Yosemite fall, thrashed and pulverized from top to bottom into one glorious mass of rainbow dust, while a thousand feet above it, the main upper fall was suspended on the face of a cliff in the form of an inverted bow, all silvery white and fringed with short, 
wavering strips. Then, suddenly, assailed by a tremendous blast, the whole mass of the fall was blown into threads and ribbons, and driven back over the brow of the cliff whence it came, as if denied admission to the valley. This kind of stormwork was continued about ten or fifteen minutes, then another change in the play of the huge exulting swells and billows and upheaving domes of the gale allowed the baffled form to gather and arrange its tattered waters and sink down again in its place. As the day advanced, the gale gave no sign of dying, excepting brief lulls. The valley was filled with its weariless roar, and the cloudless sky grew garnish white from myriads of minute sparkling snow spikels. In the afternoon, while I watched the upper fall from the shelter of a big pine tree, it was suddenly arrested in its descent at a point about halfway down and was neither blown upwards nor driven aside, but simply held stationary in mid-air, as if gravitation below that point in the path of its descent had ceased to act. The ponderous flood, weighing hundreds of tons, was sustained, hovering, hesitating, like a bunch of thistledown while I counted one hundred and ninety. All this time, the ordinary amount of water was coming off the cliff and accumulating in the air, swedging and widening and forming an irregular cone about seven hundred feet high, tapering to the top of the wall, the whole standing still, jesting on the invisible arm of the north wind. At length, as if commanded to go on again, scores of arrowy comets shot forth from the bottom of the suspended mass, as if escaping from separate outlets. The brow of El Capitan was decked with long snow streamers like hair Cloud's rest was fairly enveloped in drifting gossamer elms, and the half-dome loomed up in the garnish light like a majestic, living creature clad in some gauzy, wind-woven drapery, while upward currents meeting at times overhead made it smoke like a volcano. An extraordinary storm and flood. Glorious as are these rocks and waters arrayed in storm robes or chanting rejoicing in everyday dress, they are still more glorious when rare weather conditions meet to make them sing with floods. Only once during all the years I have lived in the valley have I seen it in full flood bloom. In 1871, the early winter weather was delightful, 
the days all sunshine, the nights all starry and calm, calling forth fine crops of frost crystals on the pines and withered ferns, and grasses for the morning sunbeams to sift through. In the afternoon of December the 16th, when I was sauntering on the meadows, I noticed a massive crimson cloud growing in solitary grandeur above the cathedral rocks, its form scarcely less striking than its color. It had a picturesque, bulging base like an old sequoia, a smooth, tapering stem, and a bossy, down-curling crown like a mushroom. All its parts were colored alike, making one mass of translucent crimson. Wondering what the meaning of that strange, lonely red cloud might be, I was up betimes next morning, looking at the weather, but all seemed tranquil as yet. Towards noon, grey clouds with a loose, curly grain like bird's eyes maple began to grow, and late at night rain fell, which soon changed to snow. Next morning, the snow on the meadows was about ten inches deep, and it was still falling in a fine, cordial storm. During the night of the 18th, heavy rain fell on the snow, but as the temperature was 34 degrees, the snow line was only a few hundred feet above the bottom of the valley, and one had only to climb a little higher than the tops of the pines to get out of the rainstorm into the snowstorm. The streams instead of being increased in volume by the storm, were diminished because the snow sponged up part of their waters and choked the smaller tributaries. But about midnight, the temperature suddenly rose to 42 degrees, carrying the snow line far beyond the valley walls, and next morning, Yosemite was rejoicing in a glorious flood. The comparatively warm rain falling on the snow was at first absorbed and held back, and so also was that portion of the snow that the rain melted, and all that was melted by the warm wind until the whole mass of snow was saturated and became sludgy, and at length slipped and rushed simultaneously from a thousand slopes in wildest extravagance, heaping and swelling flood over flood, and plunging into the valley in stupendous avalanches. Awakened by the roar, I looked out and at once recognized the extraordinary character of the storm. The rain was still pouring in torrent abundance, and the wind at gale speed was doing all it could with the flood-making rain. The section of the north wall visible from my cabin was fairly streaked with new falls. Wild, roaring singers 
that seemed strangely out of place. I snatched up a piece of bread for breakfast and ran out. The mountain waters, suddenly liberated, seemed to be holding a grand jubilee. The two sentinel cascades rivaled the great fall at ordinary stages, and across the valley, by the three brothers, I caught glimpses of more falls than I could readily count, while the whole valley throbbed and trembled, and was filled with an awful, massive, solemn, sea-like roar. After gazing a while, enchanted with the network of new falls that were adorning and transfiguring every rock in sight, I tried to reach the upper meadows where the valley is wildest, that I might be able to see the walls on both sides and thus gain general views. But the river was over its banks, and the meadows were flooded, forming an almost continuous lake dotted with blue, sludgy islands, while innumerable streams roared like lions across my path and were sweeping forward rocks and logs with tremendous energy over ground where tiny gilius had been growing but a short time before. Climbing into the talus slopes, where these savage torrents were broken among earthquake boulders, I managed to cross them and forced my way up the valley to the Hatchings Bridge, where I crossed the river and wade to the middle of the upper meadow. Here, most of the new falls were in sight probably the most glorious assemblage of waterfalls ever displayed from any one standpoint. On that portion of the south wall, between Hutchings and the Sentinel, there were ten falls plunging and booming from a height of nearly 3,000 feet, the smallest of which might have been heard miles away. In the neighborhood of Glacier Point, there were six. Between the Three Brothers and Yosemite Fall, nine. Between Yosemite and Royal Arch Falls, ten. From Washington Column to Mount Watkins, ten. On the slopes of Half Dome and Clouds Rest, facing Mirror Lake and Tenaya Canyon, eight. On the shoulder of Half Dome, facing the valley. 3. 56 new falls occupying the upper end of the valley, besides a countless host of silvery threads gleaming everywhere. In all the valley, there must have been upwards of a hundred. As if celebrating some great event, Falls and cascades in Yosemite costume were coming down everywhere from fountain basins, far and near, and, though newcomers, they behaved and sang as if they had lived here always. All summer visitors will remember the comet forms of the Yosemite Fall 
and the laces of the bridal veil and Nevada. In the falls of this winter jubilee, the lace forms predominated, but there was not a lack of thunder-toned comets. The lower portion of one of the sentinel cascades was composed of two main white torrents, with the space between them filled with chained and bead gauze of intricate pattern, through the singing threads of which the purplish-gray rock could be dimly seen. The series above Glacier Point was still more complicated in structure, displaying every form that one could imagine water might be dashed and combed and woven into. Those on the north wall, between Washington Column and the Royal Arch Fall, were so nearly related that they formed an almost continuous sheet and these again were but slightly separated from those about Indian Canyon. The group about three brothers and El Capitan, owing to the topography and cleavage of the cliffs back of them, was more broken and irregular. The Tissiac Cascades were comparatively small, yet sufficient to give that noblest of mountain rocks a glorious voice. In the midst of all this extravagant rejoicing, the great Yosemite fall was scarce heard until about three o'clock in the afternoon. Then I was startled by a sudden thundering crash as if a rock avalanche had come to the help of the roaring waters. This was the flood wave of the Yosemite Creek, which had just arrived, delayed by the distance it had to travel, and by the choking snows of its widespread fountains. Now, with volume tenfold increased beyond its springtime fullness, it took its place as leader of the glorious choir. And the winds, too, were singing in wild accord, playing on every tree and rock, surging against the huge brows and domes and outstanding battlements, deflected hither and thither and broken into a thousand cascading, roaring currents in the canyons and low bass, drumming swirls in the hollows and these again, reacting on the clouds, eroded immense, cavernous spaces in their grey depths and swept forward the resulting detritus in ragged trains like the moraines of glaciers. These cloud movements in turn published the work of the winds, giving them a visible body and enabling us to trace them. As if endowed with independent motion, a detached cloud would rise hastily to the very top of the wall, as if on some important errand, examining the face of the cliffs, and then perhaps as suddenly descend to sweep imposingly along the meadows, trailing its draggling fringes through the pines, fondling the waving spires with infinite gentleness. 
or gliding behind a grove or a single tree, bringing into striking relief as it bowed and waved in solemn rhythm. Sometimes, as the busy clouds drooped and condensed or dissolved to misty gauze, half of the valley would be suddenly veiled, leaving here and there some lofty headland cut off from all visible connection with the walls, looming alone, dim, spectral, as if belonging to the sky. Visitors, like the new falls, come to take part in the glorious festival. Thus, for two days and nights in measureless extravagance, the storm went on, and mostly without spectators, at least of a terrestrial kind. I saw nobody out, bird, bear, squirrel, or men. Tourists had vanished months before, and the hotel people and laborers were out of sight, careful about getting cold, and satisfied with views from windows. The bears, I suppose, were in their canyon boulder dens, the squirrels in their knot-hole nests, the grouse in close fir groves, and the small singers in the Indian Canyon Chaparral, trying to keep warm and dry. Strange to say, I did not see even the water oozel, though they must have greatly enjoyed the storm. This was the most sublime waterfall flood I ever saw. Clouds, winds, rocks, waters, throbbing together as one. And then to contemplate what was going on simultaneously with all this in other mountain temples. The big Tolune Canyon. How the white waters and the winds were singing there. And in Hetch Hetchy Valley and the great King's River Yosemite, and in all the other Sierra canyons and valleys, from Shasta to the southernmost fountains of the Kern, thousands of rejoicing flood waterfalls chanting together in jubilant dress. Snowstorms As has been already stated, the first of the great snowstorms that replenish the Yosemite fountains seldom set in before the end of November. Then, warned by the sky, wide-awake mountaineers, together with the deer and most of the birds, make haste to the lowlands or foothills, and burrowing marmots, mountain beavers, wood rats, and other small mountain people go into winter quarters, some of them not again to see the light of day until the general awakening and resurrection of spring in June or July. The fertile clouds, drooping and condensing in brooding silence, seem to be thoughtfully examining the forests and streams with reference to the work that lies before them. At length, all their plans perfected, tufted flakes and single, starry crystals come in sight, 
solemnly swirling and glinting to their blessed appointed places, and soon the busy throng fills the sky and makes darkness like night. The first heavy fall is usually from about two to four feet in depth, then with intervals of days or weeks of bright weather, storm succeeds storm, heaping snow on snow until thirty to fifty feet has fallen. But on account of its settling and compacting, and waste from melting and evaporation, the average depth actually found at any time seldom exceeds ten feet in the forest regions, or fifteen feet along the slopes of the summit peaks. After snowstorms come avalanches, varying greatly in form, size, behavior, and in song they sing. Some on the smooth slopes of the mountains are short and broad, others long and river-like in the side canyons of Yosemites and in main canyons, flowing in regular channels and booming like waterfalls, while countless smaller ones fall everywhere from laden trees and rocks and lofty canyon walls. Most delightful it is to stand in the middle of Yosemite on still, clear mornings after snowstorms and watch the throng of avalanches as they come down, rejoicing to their places, whispering, thrilling like birds, or booming and roaring like thunder. The noble yellow pines stand hushed and motionless, as if under a spell, until the morning sunshine begins to sift through their laden spires. Then the dense masses on the ends of the leafy branches begin to shift and fall, those from the upper branches striking the lower ones in succession, enveloping each tree in a hollow conical avalanche of fairy fineness, while the relieved branches spring up and wave with startling effect in the general stillness, as if each tree was moving of its own accord. Hundreds of broad, cloud-shaped masses may also be seen, leaping over the brows of the cliffs from great heights, descending at first with regular avalanche speed until, worn into dust by friction, they float in front of the precipices like irised clouds. These which descend from the brow of El Capitan are particularly fine, but most of the great Yosemite avalanches flow in regular channels like cascades and waterfalls. When the snow first gives way on the upper slopes of their basins, a dull, rushing, rumbling sound is heard, which rapidly increases and seems to draw nearer with appalling intensity of tone. Presently, the white flood comes bounding into sight over bosses and sheer places, leaping from bench to bench, spreading and narrowing and throwing off clouds of whirling dust 
like the spray of foaming cataracts. Compared with waterfalls and cascades, avalanches are short-lived, few of them lasting more than a minute or two, and the sharp, clashing sounds so common in falling water are mostly wanting. But in their low, massy thunder tones and purple-tinged whiteness, and in their dress, gait, gestures, and general behavior, they are much alike. Avalanches Besides these common after-storm avalanches that are not to be found only in the Yosemite, but in all the deep, sheer-walled canyon of the range, there are two other important kinds, which may be called annual and century avalanches, which still further enrich the scenery. The only place about the valley where one may be to see the annual kind is on the north slope of the clouds rest. They are composed of heavy, compacted snow, which has been subjected to frequent alterations of freezing and thawing. They are developed on canyon and mountain sides at an elevation of from nine to 10,000 feet, where the slopes are inclined at an angle too low to shed off the dry winter snow, and which accumulates until the spring thaws sap their foundations and make them slippery. Then away in grand style go the ponderous, icy masses without any fine snow dust. Those of clouds rest descend like thunderbolts for more than a mile. The great century avalanches and the kind that mow wide swaths through the upper forests occur on mountainsides about 10 or 12,000 feet high, where under ordinary weather conditions, the snow accumulated from winter to winter lies at rest for many years, allowing trees 50 to 100 feet high to grow undisturbed on the slopes beneath them. On their way down through the woods, they seldom fail to make a perfectly clean sweep, stripping off the soil as well as the trees, clearing paths two or three hundred yards wide from the timberline to the glacier meadows or lakes, and piling their uprooted trees head downward in rows along the side of the gaps like lateral moraines. Scars and broken branches of trees standing on the side of the gaps record the depth of the overwhelming flood, and when we come to count the annual wood rings on the uprooted trees, we learn that some of these immense avalanches occur only once in a century or even at still wider intervals. A Ride on an Avalanche Few Yosemite visitors ever see snow avalanches, and fewer still know the exhilaration of riding on them. In all my mountaineering, 
I have enjoyed only one avalanche ride, and the start was so sudden, and the end came so soon, I had but little time to think of the danger that attends this sort of travel. Though at such times, one thinks fast. One fine Yosemite morning, after a heavy snowfall, being eager to see as many avalanches as possible, and wide views of the forest and summit peaks in their new white robes before the sunshine had time to change them, I set out early to climb by a side canyon to the top of a commanding ridge a little over 3,000 feet above the valley. On account of the looseness of the snow that blocked the canyon, I knew the climb would require a long time, some three or four hours as I estimated, but it proved far more difficult than I had anticipated. Most of the way, I sank waist-deep, almost out of sight in some places. After spending the whole day to within half an hour or so of sundown, I was still several hundred feet below the summit. Then my hopes were reduced to getting up in time to see the sunset, but I was not to get summit views of any sort that day, for deep trampling near the canyon head, where the snow was strained, started an avalanche, and I was swished down to the foot of the canyon as if by enchantment. The wallowing ascent had taken nearly all day, the descent only about a minute. When the avalanche started, I threw myself on my back and spread my arms to try to keep me from sinking. Fortunately, though the grade of the canyon is very steep, it is not interrupted by precipices large enough to cause outbounding or free plunging. On no part of the rush was I buried. I was only moderately embedded on the surface, or at times a little below it, and covered with a veil of backstreaming dust particles, and as the whole mass beneath and about me joined in the flight, there was no friction, though I was tossed here and there and lurched from side to side. When the avalanche swedged and came to rest, I found myself on top of the crumpled pile without bruise or scar. This was a fine experience. Hawthorne says somewhere that steam has spiritualized travel, though unspiritual smells, smoke, etc. still attend steam travel. This flight, in what might be called a milky way of snow stars, was the most spiritual and exhilarating of all the modes of motion I have ever experienced. Elijah's flight in a chariot of fire could hardly have been more glorious or exciting. The Streams in Other Seasons In the spring, after all the avalanches are down and the snow is melting fast, then all the Yosemite streams, from their fountains to their falls, sing their grandest songs. 
Countless rills make haste to the rivers, running and singing soon after sunrise, louder and louder, with increasing volume until sundown. Then they gradually fail through the frosty hours of the night. In this way, the volume of the upper branches of the river is nearly doubled during the day, rising and falling as regularly as the tides of the sea. Then the Merced overflows its banks, flooding the meadows, sometimes almost from wall to wall in some places, beginning to rise towards sundown, just when the streams on the fountains are beginning to diminish. The difference in time of the daily rise and fall being caused by the distance the upper flood streams have to travel before reaching the valley. In the warmest weather, they seem fairly to shout for joy and clash their upleaping waters together like clapping hands, racing down the canyons with white manes flying in glorious exuberance of strength, compelling huge sleeping boulders to wake up and join their dance and song, to swell their exulting chorus. In early summer, after the flood season, the Yosemite streams are in their prime, running crystal clear, deep and full, but not overflowing their banks, about as deep through the night as the day, the difference in volume so marked in spring being now too slight to be noticed. Nearly all the weather is cloudless, and everything as at its brightest, lake river, garden and forest with all their life. Most of the plants are in full flower, the blessed oozles have built their mossy huts and are now singing their best songs with the streams. In tranquil, mellow autumn, when the year's work is about done and the fruits are ripe, birds and seeds are out of their nests and all the landscape is glowing like a benevolent countenance, then the streams are at their lowest ebb, with scarce a memory left of their wild spring floods. The small tributaries that do not reach back to the lasting snow fountains of the summit peaks shrink to whispering, tickling currents. After the snow is gone from the basins, Excepting occasional thunder showers, they are now fed only by small springs whose waters are mostly evaporated in passing over miles of warm pavements and in feeling their way slowly from pool to pool through the midst of the boulders and sand. Even the main rivers are so low they may easily be forded and their grand falls and cascades, now gentle, and approachable, have waned to sheets of embroidery.